Our last meeting we finished up in chapter 7 the book of Esther. And so tonight we will begin in chapter 8. But this afternoon as I read chapter 8, it just flowed into chapter 9 and then climaxed there in chapter 10. And chapter 10 only has three verses. So we may just hit the, the high spots in these, these last three chapters. We'll just uh, we'll see how it goes tonight. But before we begin, I would like to just go back and just review basically what we have studied and what we have learned in the first seven chapters in the book of Esther. We know that the Jews uh, were in the Medes Persian Empire. The ones that were there could have actually returned to Jerusalem, but they chose to stay. It's been estimated there was about 100 million people in the Medes Persian Empire. And of that 100 million, there was about 15 million Jews. We've read about a king and a man by the name of Haman, who was a very wicked man. In fact, when Esther points him out and identifies him to the king, she speaks about him, Haman, that wicked one. That will remind us of what the New Testament tells us about Satan. We're told that Satan is that wicked one. And when you read of Haman, you just can't help but think about, I believe, Satan and the devil himself. He certainly had the spirit of Satan, did he not? It was his full intentions to try to murder 15 million people and to do away with the Jewish people. But in this book of Esther, we've seen the hand of God in his providence. The name of God's not in the book, but the God that we believe in is in the book. And the word prayer is not in the book, but I believe that the Jewish people, indeed, when they fasted, they also prayed to those three days before Esther went in to the king, hoping that he might hold out the gold and scepter. We've seen how God has taken two Jews, Mordecai and Esther, and has elevated them into two positions of power and authority. Uh, Esther was just another Jewish woman among the 15 million Jews. But she was a beautiful young woman. And she was chosen to come before the king, and then the king chose her to be the queen, to replace the queen that he had when this book opens up. Mordecai spent his time at the gate, which tells us that he was some type of government official. Mordecai was the uncle of Esther. We find how God brought all these things to light by a sleepless night, one night when the king could not sleep, and he called for the chronicles. It was in the chronicles that he became aware that Mordecai had warned uh, the officials of two men who were trying to plan to assassinate the king. The king wasn't even aware of this. It was news to him. And he inquired what had been done for this man, Mordecai, and nothing had been done for him. And of course we see how the tables were reversed. And Haman had to honor Mordecai, and how he dressed him up and brought him down through the streets. We later find out while the queen identified, when she made her request to the king, she identified herself as a Jewish woman and her people as a Jewish people, and how that she identified Haman as that wicked one who had made these plans and got the king to sign this decree that all the Jewish people were to be slain on a certain day. 
So as chapter 7 ended, we find that Haman winds up being hung on the gallows that he had prepared and built for Mordecai. We mentioned last time how the law of sowing and reaping comes to our attention here. We saw how Mordecai uh, sowed anger, and he received anger at the hand of the king. He sowed with full intentions to commit murder, to slay uh, all the Jewish people, the 15 million Jewish people that was in the land in that day. And he reaped when the king slew him again, when he hung him on those gallows. And so chapter 7 ends with that. So Haman is now dead. The chief enemy of the Lord's people that day, he is dead. But like so many times, people, they sow a lot of things, and they may die, but the consequences of their actions live on for generations. And so there's still a very serious problem now as we go into chapter 8, and that is that this decree that Haman had written out had the king's authority to write it, had the king's approval, had the king's support, uh, had gone out, is still in effect. As it stands now, in a certain time, this is going to be about eight months later, uh, the Jewish people face being slain by the Persians. So what could be done about it? Now this reminds me of a law that God gave in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. When he told Adam that he could eat of every tree in the Garden of Eden except one, that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, he broke that law. He broke that commandment. He transgressed. And Adam and all his posterity fell in what we call the law of sin and death. That law cannot be changed. Something else has to happen to deliver God's people from that law. And that's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, it says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending forth his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh. That's our only hope. See, that, that's where our hope lies. Lies in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, his resurrection, his offering, sacrifice to the Father on behalf of the people of God. So another law is going to have to be written. Now as we open up chapter 8, we find after Haman is slain that the king gives all the household of Haman unto Esther. It is all of his property, all of his wealth. Everything that belonged to Haman, he now gives to Esther. Esther then puts Mordecai in charge of it. And the king now has his ring back that he gave Haman. Remember that? He gave Haman his ring to seal the decree. That means the king was given his approval. The king was given his authority. And the law of the Medes Persians was whatever the king established as law, it could not be reversed. It cannot be changed. Even the king himself cannot change it. So the king gives the ring now, to Mordecai. Mordecai basically now becomes the prime minister. Haman was the prime minister. And Mordecai had some type of, I think, important job at the gate of the city. But now he's been promoted and elevated to where he is next to the king like Haman was. Now, see, that re reminds me of how Joseph... Uh, how he had been put into a pit by his brother. He was sold in, down to Egypt. He was then put into prison, falsely accused. 
And from that position and condition that Joseph is in, we find how the Lord providentially elevated him, lifted him up out of that to where he became second in command to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. It's just an incredible, incredible story. But this is just about as incredible as that is. Here is a Jewish maid who's the queen of the king of the Medes and Persian Empire. And Mordecai is now the prime minister. And Mordecai and Esther are kinfolks, uncle and niece, Jewish. And now the king actually recognizes and realizes by marriage they're all kinfolks. Even the king now is king by marriage unto Esther and Mordecai. And you're going to see the king being very cooperative with Esther and Mordecai. You're going to find where the queen comes before the king again. Once again, the king has to hold out the golden scepter. And she comes to the king with tears, and the king once again holds out the golden scepter unto her. And she's going to make a plea. She's going to make intercession on behalf of the Jewish people. Now, that's an important principle, I think, in the Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. You can go back and read in Exodus chapter 32, and you'll find where Israel had fallen to the gross idolatry after being so incredibly blessed of God. And God was so angry with them, he told Moses he was going to totally destroy them. And he would make up another nation from Moses. Now this tells me something about Moses too. Here Moses, God has told Moses, I'm going to make a new nation out of you, Moses. I guess that had to be somewhat tempting based upon human nature. Did you know what Moses did? He prayed, he interceded on behalf of the Israelites. And then the Bible says that God repented. It's not a repentance like we repent. But God listened to Moses. And therefore, he did not destroy the nation of Israel. He told Moses he was about to do. We find the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was a Jew. And the Apostle Paul loved the nation of Israel. He loved his people. We find recorded in Romans 10.1 where Paul says, Now, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, are going about trying to establish their own righteousness and not submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for Christ's sake to everyone that believeth. Then we notice here that Paul is praying. He said, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is. I think you can just feel the heaviness in his heart. In fact, in Romans 9 and 3, 2 and 3, Paul said he was willing to become accursed for Israel's sake. He was willing to be accursed himself if it meant that Israel could see the light and understanding that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law and the Lord Jesus Christ had saved his people from their sins. That's what Paul has under consideration. When he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is they might be saved, he's not talking about eternal salvation here. He's talking about being saved to a knowledge of the truth. He's talking about being saved from that ignorance that he says they're in. He said, I bear and reckon they have a zeal of God, not a zeal from God, but a zeal of God. That meant they had a zeal and it came from God. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They being ignorant of God's righteousness or trying to go about establishing their own right. And you see a lot of God's people trying to do that today. They're trying to establish their righteousness before God 
And it cannot be done in their own flesh. It just simply cannot be done. But they're trying to do it. They want to make sure when the time comes they leave this world uh, that they've done enough good things to outweigh enough of the bad things. But I'm telling you, you can't work hard enough or long enough to be able to do that. Just one sin, my friends, is all it takes to condemn us under God's righteous law, you see. The Lord Jesus Christ represented us and took our sins, his own body, to the tree of the cross. It's just that simple. I'm glad to preach a simple gospel. I'm glad to preach a gospel that's very simple if you just, <laughs> if you just consider it. If you just think about it. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says, For he became sin, talking about Jesus, for he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Just simply meaning that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was a vicarious death, that he died in the room instead of his people, and therefore his perfect righteousness was imputed in charge to the elect. And the elect, my friends, their sins was charged to the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid the sin debt and clothed us with his righteousness. That's how it works, you see. That's, that's simple, isn't it? I don't see anything difficult about that, anything complicated about that. And so we find where the queen comes tearfully before the king, and she approaches him just like she did the first time. If I have found favor in thy sight. I want you to notice how uh, the wisdom of this woman right here. In uh, chapter 8, and verse 5, If it please the king, and I found favor in his sight, and the things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes. Notice all these things she's saying right here. Let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of so-and-so, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which in all the king's providences. For how can I endure to see the evil that should come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So the king then tells Esther. He says, what he's done for her, how he gave her the household of Haman, how they hung him upon the gallows. And then verse 8, he says, Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring, for the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. Now remember the two laws I gave you earlier. There's a law of sin and death. It cannot be reversed. It cannot be undone. It cannot be changed. So what happens? There's another law written. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's what makes you free from the law of sin and death. So he's going to write another law. And the king is going to support it. And the king, uh, what he writes here is cannot be reversed. Verse 9, then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivine, on the three and twentieth day thereof, it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews and to the lieutenants and the deputies and the rulers, etc., etc., to sent to all 127 provinces. He wrote, verse 10, he wrote in the king's name, sealed it with the king's ring, sent by letters by post on horseback, riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries. I hope you see the urgency of this, the importance of this, the urgency of this. The message needs to be put out. It, it, it just can't be put out by internet. It can't be put out like it could be today by email or whatever. You know, you can send a text to people all around the world today, an email to people all around the world. It didn't work that way. This is the way they had to get the writing that Mordecai has written, sealed with the king's ring, has the king's approval, and it's sent out to all the Persian Empire, all 127 provinces. I hope you can see the urgency in this, the importance of this, to get the news out. Now, notice this. 
The decree has already been signed. The second decree has already been signed. But the people don't know about it. See, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is a done deal. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ is a perfect, righteous work. Knowing about it is not going to make it happen. Not knowing about it is not going to take away from it. But we want people to know about it, don't we? You know, I know you've probably heard the story, but you know, when World War II ended, uh, the war was over. But before the information message got out about the war being over, there were still people fighting because they didn't know the war was over. <laughs> Not knowing the war wasn't over didn't mean the war wasn't over. The war was over. But they didn't know it. And they were still fighting. They were still hiding in caves and one thing and another because they, they didn't know it until the information got to them. There's a lot of God's people have never been blessed to see the light of the gospel in Jesus Christ to know that the war is over. I love Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, thus saith the Lord. Declaring in Jerusalem that her warfare is accomplished. Her iniquities have been pardoned. She received the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. That's the message of the gospel. And it's a comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, thus saith the Lord message. Not a, not a scare ye, scare ye message. Now you think about the contrast. I mentioned, I think, last Sunday, going down the road to Birmingham, there's a sign, heaven or hell, which shall it be? <laughs> Where do you spend eternity? All those signs are meant to scare you. <laughs> They're meant to try to scare people into salvation. <laughs> I'm glad that's not true. I'm so glad that's not true. The message of the gospel is never intended to intimidate people, scare people, or frighten people. The gospel message is meant to assure people and comfort people, enlighten them, instruct them, edify them, show them and declare and proclaim unto them that the Lord Jesus Christ has put our sins away as far as the east from the west. And when that message comes, it brings peace to the mind, it brings comfort to the heart, a great deliverance for the Lord's people. The message gets put out. The Lord is blessing. Let's look over here in the last verse of chapter 8. Uh, verse, uh, verse 16, the last two verses. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. What a reversal. What was, what was the case before they became enlightened to this decree? They were fearful. This first decree brought dread. It brought terror. It brought... Uh, captivity. They knew in one year from the time that decree had been signed that they were helpless. They could do nothing. They were going to be destroyed. But now this decree here gives them some rights. Let's look in verse 11. Let's back up just for a second. Wherein the king granted the Jews that were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, to cause, to perish all the power of the people and providence that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for prey. They now have the right, they have the legal right to defend themselves. They have the legal right to slay those that would attack them. They did not have the right to go beyond that. But they had a right to defend themselves, and the decree says that they are to slay everybody, and they can take the spoils. But I want you to remember that, because... They're not going to use every liberty that God gave them here in this decree when it comes time to do that. So it brought great joy to them. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. 
in every province and in every city, whether so the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. <laughs> Let's imagine you're a Jew in that day. You've got the news of the first decree. The decree, decree says that those in the Medes, Persian Empire are going to have the right to come and they're going to have the right to slay you, kill you, you and your family your, and your little ones, everybody, and that's what's going to happen. There's very nothing they're going to be able to do about it. But now another decree comes out. And that decree says, listen, when that day comes, you're going to have the king's backing. You're going to have the, the authority of the king that you can rise up and you can defend yourself. And it's okay to slay the enemy. All those that attack you, it's going to be okay for you to slay them. The Jews now have great joy. Things have totally reversed, haven't they? You know, I want to read this for emphasis sake. It's found in Isaiah chapter 61. Things written before time was written for our learning. We can learn so much from the Old Testament books such as the book of Esther. But I want you to notice how similar the language here is in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is a prophecy of Christ. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. That second decree was good tidings, wasn't it? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn to appoint unto them that mourn inside, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. How about your own experience tonight? As the Lord has blessed you and enlightened you with the understanding of his word, the truth of the gospel, the truth of his written word, my friends, the truth of his marvelous grace, has it made a change in your life if, have you uh, gone from, uh, you know, uh, from ashes? Uh, be, has God given you beauty for ashes? He given you the oil of joy for mourning? Has he given you a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness? <laughs> I hope he has. I hope you can feel that and understand that. And that's what the Jews uh, were feeling. And notice the last expression of this chapter. And many of the people of the land became Jews for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now, what does that mean? That means that they were happy for the Jewish people. The people in general were happy. They never did understand that first decree. Remember how the people in the city of Shushan were perplexed when they first heard of this decree? They didn't understand why the king, why the king approved that. They didn't understand why it was written to begin with. And so they're happy. They see the Jews being happy. You know, I wish I was so happy other people around me wanted to be happy and find out, why are you so happy? And that, you know, each one of you, <laughs> you ought to go to, to your workplace and you ought to just be happy, especially on a Monday, to the point where people say, why are you so happy? And you say, well, I had such a fabulous day in church yesterday. We just had a wonderful time, a wonderful meeting, and, and, and the gospel was preached. And once again, I was assured of my salvation. It's just made me so happy. It's just carried me over to the next day. And somebody said, well, I need to know where you go. Uh, anybody's made that happy, I want to be happy too. <laughs> you know, uh, things are contagious, aren't they? You need to walk around sad all the time. You just make other people sad. I, I, I've known people who's getting along just fine until somebody said they look sick. The next thing you know, they're going uh, to the doctor. And they was all good all along. 
<laughs> they were. <laughs> it's amazing how people can say things that put an impact in your life and cause you to think in ways just like that. So the, Jew, the people in the kingdom, they said, you know, I believe I want to be like a Jew. So notice, notice says, the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now you might think, now how is 15 million people going to defend themselves against 85 million people? Well, first of all, not all the 85 million people will do them harm to begin with. But the Lord's going to do something here. He's been doing for his people for a long time. Remember how many times the Lord said, I'll go before you, I'll fight your battles for you. The Lord did that in various ways. The Lord did that in, in many different ways. But one of the ways the Lord did this was by putting his fear into the hearts of the enemy. Notice this. Verse, the latter part of verse 1. Though it turned to the contrary that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. It reversed. To begin when they had the rule over the Jews, but now the Jews have rule over them that hated them. The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all their provinces of the king to lay hold, hand on such assault their hurt, and no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell among all the people. And all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and the officers of the king helped the Jews. Notice that. All the, the officials, the politicians of that day, all who had positions of power are going to help the Jewish people. Now, how can that be? What brought all that about? Take a look at Genesis chapter 35 just a minute. This is an experience of Jacob. Genesis chapter 35 and verse 5. Well, take a look at verse 4. They gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. And they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. Why did they not pursue the sons of Jacob? Because the fear of God was put upon them. The terror of God was upon the cities round about. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 2. In verse 25, Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 25, we have a very similar statement here. The Lord would fight their battles for them. See, Israel was always in the minority. But in verse 25, the Lord said, This day will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. Who put the fear of God in? God did. Have you ever heard somebody say, maybe you said it yourself, boy, I'm going to put the fear of God in you. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> do you know that? You can't do that. I cannot put the fear of God in anybody, and you can't either. But I tell you, who can put the fear of God in somebody? God himself. And that's exactly what God did in Jacob's case. Exactly what God did when Israel was about to go into the land of Canaan. God put his fear in their hearts, and they just melted Notice in Joshua chapter 2, as Israel is about to cross, they cross, about to cross Jordan, going to Jericho, the spies going to the land. And in Joshua chapter 2, we find a conversation between Rahab the harlot and the messengers. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord had given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us. 
and all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, the other side and Jordan, Sahan and Og, whom you early destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did bring any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he's God in heaven above and in earth beneath. God just put his fear in their hearts. God worked on their behalf. They fainted. Their hearts began to melt. Israel said the minority didn't matter. God put his fear in their hearts and was working for his people. And here we have the same thing brought to our attention. And we got the rulers working for them. And then notice one other thing. The fear of Mordecai fell upon them. Mordecai is in a position of authority now. He's not the king. He's the prime minister. He's got the king's backing. He's got the king's ring. He's got the king's support. And the people feared, the, feared Mordecai. Now, we got a God in heaven that we're to fear in a respectable way. In Hebrews 10, 31, it says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, this is not a slavish fear. This is not being frightened of God. This is simply respecting God. This is simply having a reverence for God. You know, Psalms 111, verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. Jesus said, when you pray, you pray in this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We're to have such respect for the name of Christ, for the name of God, for the name of our Lord, that we give him reverence. God put his fear into the hearts of the enemies, and they feared the words of Mordecai. This second decree are the words of Mordecai, you see. And the enemy feared that. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, waxed greater and greater. How was he able to do that? Just like when Joshua took over the place of Moses, the Bible says God began to magnify Joshua. It was God who began to make Joshua, uh, as he magnified him, the people began to see how important this man was, what a wonderful man this man was, what a great man this man was. And the same thing was taking place here with Mordecai. He waxed greater and greater and greater. But you're going to notice as you finish reading all this, Mordecai never abused his authority. Mordecai always sought the benefit of God's children, their welfare of God's children. He never used his position to better himself. Now, that's the mark of a great man right there. That's the mark of a great man. Now, as you read in this ninth chapter, you're going to find where the Jews in Shushan are going to slay 800 people. And the Jews and all the other provinces are going to slay 75,000. Remember now, they're 15 million against 85 million. But the 85 million, many of them didn't want the Jews to do any harm to begin with. And many of them had, uh, had become a desire to become like the Jewish people. And the Jews had the authority of the king and Mordecai and Esther, the king and the queen and the prime minister. And also the political figures of that day were all there supporting all of them. It's just amazing to me that anybody would fight against the Jews knowing all that. But they did. But you're going to notice three different times where it says here that they laid not their hand upon the spoil. 
And they only slew the men. They did not slay the women. They did not slay the children. They only slew the men. They only slew those who attacked them. They took none of the spoil. Three times we're told they took none of the spoil. So why is that important, Brother Ronald? Because they were not in it for the spoil. All they wanted to do was be able to defend themselves. All they wanted to do was have peace and happiness and, and contentment and joy and liberty. That's all they wanted to begin with. And God has provided a means where they can have all of that, you see. So they didn't take a single thing, although the decree gave them the right and the liberty to do so. Now, on the 13th day, verse 17, on the 13th day of the month, Adar, and on the 14th day of the same, resting day, and made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled themselves on the 13th day thereof, and on the 14th, and on the 15th day of the same, they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. Now, we got two different times here. In the provinces, you're going to find where the people, their conflict was over a day earlier than it was at Shushan the palace. So theirs was over on the 13th day, and they, on the 14th day, they had a day of feasting and, uh, and uh, enjoying gladness. Then Jews in Shushan, it took them through the 14th day to end their conflict, and so they were rejoicing on the 15th day. Now Mordecai is going to write a letter. Notice this in verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king, both nine far, to establish this among them that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same yearly. Now this is not my divine appointment right here. But nevertheless, Mordecai wanted this day to be remembered. Not only for that present generation, but for the generations to follow. He wanted that day to be remembered. So he sends out this letter to do that. As the days when the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned to them from sorrow to joy. Notice the, the, the contrast. From sorrow to joy, from morning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and send portions one to another and gifts to the poor. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, as Mordecai had written unto them. Because Haman, the son of so-and-so, the Agite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy him, and he cast per, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. Now here's where Purim comes in. Here's where the name Purim comes in. When Haman had that decree signed, Haman cast lots to determine the day, to determine the time that forces would go out and slay all the Jews of the kingdom. So the word per means lot. And so as he had done that to destroy them, but when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device, which advised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Now, I kind of missed that. Let me go back and get this just for a moment. The queen makes another petition to the king. After Haman is hung, after his household has been given unto Esther, she put Mordecai in charge of it. The king says, now, what is your request? She says that the ten sons of Haman also be hanged on the gallows. And they were. All ten of them were hung on the gallows at the exact same time. Those sons of Haman, I think, were just as wicked as he was. And Queen Esther knew that. 
So that has taken place. Wherefore they call these days Purim after the name of Purim. Therefore for all the words of this letter and that which they had concerning this matter which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city. And that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them that perish from their seeds. So the Jews today, they've been observing this day ever since. It's not a Christian, by the way, it's not a Christian holiday. It's not a day that we observe. But you know, I'm thankful for the Jewish people. It's from the Jewish people that we have the inspired Word of God. The Word of God comes to us by the writings of Jewish writers. The very first Christians were Jewish believers. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, obviously, was a Jewish man. The Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on a Jewish holiday of Passover. When he arose after three days and three nights, it was in celebration of the first fruits. That was a Jewish holiday as well. The, the Feast of First Fruits was very important because when the Jewish people harvested their crops, the very first fruits that they gathered, they would take and they would wave a sheaf before the Lord. And when the Lord accepted that offering, what it signified was that he was accepting the entire harvest. What's Jesus called in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? He's the first fruits of them that slept. You know what that means? That means all the family of God are accepted based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the first fruits of them that slept. That guarantees your resurrection. It guarantees my resurrection. It guarantees the resurrection of every elect child of grace. <laughs> so then Jews gather together. On the days appointed, they go to the synagogue on the first day. And the book of Esther is read publicly. The entire book, 10 chapters, doesn't take that long to read it, right? But the book of Esther is read. And every time the name Haman is read, the people stop their feet and they cry out in unison, let his name perish, let his name perish. And then they go home. And then they come back the next day, back to the synagogue again. Once again, the book of Esther is read, but another part of God's word is read. The 17th chapter of the book of Exodus is read. In the 17th chapter of the book of Exodus, we have recorded the first battle that Israel had after crossing the Red Sea into the wilderness. And you knew who it was against? It was against the Amalekites. You know where Haman came from? He came from the Amalekites. Remember we mentioned this early on in studying the book of Esther. If Saul was given instructions, he went out to fight King Agag of the Amalekites, and God instructed him to slay the king and everybody else and to bring nothing back. And God blessed him to win that battle. King Saul didn't obey the Lord. And he brought back the king and the very the best, you know, of, of the cattle and the, and the camels and things. And when Samuel appeared, old King Saul said, well, I did what the Lord said. You know, some people believe partial obedience... <laughs> means total obedience. But partial obedience never means total obedience, brother. God's not pleased with partial obedience. He's not pleased with a token effort. 
God is pleased we give him everything we got and we follow his instructions to a T. And Samuel says, well, I tell you what, if you've done what the Lord said, how come I hear the lowing of the oxen and the bleeding of the sheep? They, they test, that was testimony against Saul. He had not done what the Lord said. If Saul had done what the Lord said, Haman wouldn't have been around to be the person he was to begin with. So they read that chapter. And when it's all over, they go home. And they rejoice. And they feast. And they have a, time, a day of gladness. Because this is a day that they remember how God delivered them. Had God not delivered them, they would have been destroyed. But see, God made a, a promise to Abraham in the very beginning. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse thee. And in thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That seed on consideration was not Isaac. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so generation after generation, century after century, all the enemies of the Jewish people who tried to slay them, kill them, and wipe them off the face of this earth, God always defended his people and he always delivered them. So I want you to think about two days as we conclude this here tonight. I want you to think about two D-days. The first D-day stands for death. That's in connection with that first decree. That decree was a decree of death. But that second D stands for deliverance. And that second decree was a decree that gave the Jewish people freedom and liberty. And it was a way that they could be delivered from that first decree. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians rather, chapter 1, Paul tells the Corinthians, he said, I will not have you ignorant, brother, concerning our troubles in Asia. He said, how we were pressed out of measure, that we despaired of life. He says, we had to send us to death within ourselves. But then when he reached that point where he said that, he says, we had the sense of death within ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who hath delivered us so great a death. Not only does he deliver us so great a death, but he doth deliver. And then we trust he will yet deliver. Aren't you glad of those three deliverances right there? Those three deliverances mean that God, through Jesus Christ, delivered us from the law of sin and death. That second deliverance means every single day that I live, God, I'm dependent upon God to deliver me from the seen and the unseen, from the forces of this world, from this world in which I live in. Uh, you know, I was uh, talking to down in Birmingham at Vestavia Church. A sister came up to me and she says, you know, uh, we pray for you on a regular basis. She says, it's just amazing how, you know, you have traveled so much. It's just amazing uh, all, all that you do, uh, everywhere you go, whatever, and, and how the Lord takes care of you on the highways every single day. <laughs> and I said, well, I that hadn't lost my attention, I'll tell you that. I thank the good Lord just about every day. I mean, uh, I try to thank him every day for this. And I want to thank him and being your deliverer as well. Uh, when you leave this driveway, as I told you before, you go into a war zone, brother. You go into a place of great danger just as soon as you crank your car up and get on that highway out there. And how many times has God put his arm of deliverance around you and brought you back home safely? 
How many times? We almost had a wreck the other day, Karen and I, going downtown Nashville. And this car just turned right, come right across our lane near Trinity Avenue and just almost cut us off. And uh, I thought I was going to have to take Karen on to the ER. After that, uh, you know, she got so upset. She said, all I could see was that car about to hit us here and that retaining wall over there. Well, I, I thought I had everything under control, and I did. But the good Lord, my friends, I believe, delivered us in that situation. I'm not going to say it was my skill in driving. I, I thought I did do a pretty good job. But I believe the good Lord was with me, took care of me, and said, he doth deliver me. And I'm telling you, I'm looking for deliverance one day when he shall speak and my body is going to lie in that grave. He's going to hear that voice. He'll deliver me from that grave and take me home to be with him in glory. I want you to remember those two days. In fact, we're going to wrap this thing up tonight. I'm going to read these three verses in chapter 10 in conclusion. And King Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land, upon the isles of the sea, and all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of the Medes in Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto the king and great among the Jews and accepted the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all his seed. See, the book of Esther has come to a, a climatic end, hasn't it? It's just come to a climatic end here tonight. But it was, if you go back, you'll find where Mordecai wrote a letter, Esther wrote a letter, it was recorded in a book. We have it now given to us by divine inspiration, and it is a great strength and help to me, and it has been for God's people for over 2,000 years since this book's been written, and we still have it in our possession today. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Things written before time was written for our learning. I hope we've learned some things in the book of Esther. I hope we have learned how God's hand is a mighty hand. His arm is an outstretched arm. I hope we understand that God's a God of great providence, a God of great deliverance. And God comes to the rescue of his people every single time. My friends, when they face an insurmountable odds here in this world, individually, collectively, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has lasted about 2,000 years. Why? Because the almighty God has delivered her time and time and time again. She's always been small. She's always been looked down upon. She's always been despised. The doctrine of grace, my friends, is not the most favorable doctrine in all the world, but to the hungry and thirsty child of God who's seen himself or herself as a poor, undone, unworthy sinner, the doctrine of grace is the greatest message you'll hear this side of heaven itself. 